and welcome back to the On Earth Podcast. I am your host, Samantha Tuttle, and I'm back after a short break. A couple of weeks ago, the norovirus came to visit our house and took both kids out. This was on top of my son recently breaking his leg, and we also had a couple birthdays mixed in, so the most logical thing to do was to hit the pause button on the podcast for a few weeks and focus on just getting everyone better. But today I'm back, and... I want to jump right back in and focus on an episode I've been working on for some time now. I had to sit with this one for a while, and I'm glad I did because I'm really excited with how it turned out. I want to show you what happens when we start looking at the intricacies of naming things. And I thought it would be fun to dig beneath the surface of the naming concept and process and see if we can discover together some deeper truths, some ahas, and some wonder and awe that maybe we've never noticed or thought about before. I have some cool stories to share in this episode, so this is going to be a fun one. Early on in my days working as a pastor, I was asked by one of the families to come to their house and participate in a naming ceremony. The family was from Africa, and it was their tradition that on the eighth day of a baby's life, The name is announced to the whole family, and they wanted me to be the one to make that announcement. This was like a huge honor, and I went to their home to learn more about what I would need to do. And before the ceremony, I learned that there would be this huge party with lots of authentic African food, and then there would be the naming ceremony with very specific blessings that I and other family members would be taking a part in. And so... Here I am at their home learning about everything when the mother tells me that it was time for me to start practicing the baby's name. This baby had six or seven names, several of which I had no idea how to pronounce. I I don't think I've ever been so intimidated in all my life. And all these years later, I, I only remember one of the names, and I remember it because it was the only easy name to say. In the middle of all of his African names, they included the name Richard. Richard, I could say, but all the other names were practically impossible. And so his mother patiently helped me learn how to enunciate each of his names. You want to talk about pressure. I, I was determined I wanted to get this right because his whole family would be hearing his name for the first time from me. And if I remember correctly, I I think I actually went back to their home a few more times to practice. On the evening of the ceremony, the senior pastor and I, we went over to the house and I remember on the table were all these various items like a pen, there was honey and water and salt and sugar, nuts and seeds. And And so as I held the baby in my arms, I would pick up one of the items and touch it either to his lips or to his hand. So for example, with the pen, I placed the pen in his hand and then read a blessing about using his voice and his creativity. And we we did that with all the items as different people from the family gave these little blessings. I distinctly remember being paranoid when I saw the honey because I knew that giving a baby honey could make them very sick. So When it was time to do the honey, I intentionally put it under his lip and then wiped it off right afterwards. And then at the very end of the blessings, I had the pleasure of announcing all of his names to his whole family and 
everyone cheered and clapped and hugged and it, it was truly one of the most beautiful things I have ever been a part of. Now, if you've ever named something or someone, then you know just how challenging the process can be. Have you, have you ever experienced trying to get the whole family to rally around the name, uh, the same name for a puppy? Because picking a puppy name, it's serious business. But giving a name to a brand new baby is on a level all its own. You start figuring out all your family members' middle names and you go out and you buy all the baby name books and you start making lists of what you like and then there's the part where you shoot down all the names that you hate from each other's list. When Mike and I were expecting our first baby, he thought it would be fun to see if we could use Survey Monkey to help us narrow down all our choices. And so one survey was for the first name and the other was for the middle name. And then the idea was that we would just put them together and see what we ended up with. And as you can totally imagine, it was a complete disaster. We were the only ones in the family that knew we were having a boy, which meant we were the only ones who knew his name. And so for months, we were the only ones who knew uh, what his name was. We were keeping it all a secret. And I remember when we were at the hospital, before he was born, the nurse asked us what his name was because she wanted to write it up on the dry erase board on the wall. And so for the first time, we said his name to someone and she wrote it up on the wall and everybody in the room knew his name. And right when he was born, one of the first things our son heard was his name, Noah. We, we have a video of when the nurse was weighing him and putting on that little, you know, pink and blue hat on his head. And in between screams, you can hear Mike saying, uh, talking to him, saying, hi, Noah. Our name is part of our identity at, at a certain level. It's who we are. We tell people our name. We respond when we hear someone say our name. When when couples get married, historically, there's always that part where the bride chooses whether to keep her last name or change it. Um, I personally, I decided to take Mike's last name when we got married, which meant I had to get new everything. I had to get a new social security card. I had to get a new passport. I had to update my name on all of our bills because Mike moved in with me. By the way, Verizon never could figure out how to update my name on our Fios bill. I remember... There was that awkward phase when you have to sign your new name and it feels really weird for a while. And so those first few months, your signature kind of looks like someone from second grade signed it for you. But then after a while, it kind of becomes your new normal. This actually wasn't my first time experiencing this kind of transition. When I was in sixth grade, my mom had just gotten married and before then it was just my mom and I. She was a single mom and we both shared the, la the same last name, Levesey. And so several months after her wedding, her new husband, my new dad, uh, he adopted me and I took his last name, Jesse. And I, I distinctly remember being at school and having to remember to write Jesse instead of Levesey when I would put my name on anything. Now, Looking back, as I was thinking about what I wanted to say, looking back, it actually kind of makes sense now that I think about it, that I started to become very interested in the names of trees and birds and wildflowers. I would go on 
walks by myself with my nature guidebooks and literally memorized the names of everything I could identify. In college, I, I took every ecology, forestry, and botany class I could fit into my schedule each semester. I became obsessed with knowing the names of everything. I, I had this intuition that if I knew the name of a tree or a flower, that somehow it would help me feel even more connected to God. And so I memorized all the names, including the Latin. I studied the intricacies, the, the contours of the leaves, the bark, the canopy. I, I remember I memorized bird calls and their flying patterns as they flew across the sky. I, I studied mushrooms and moss. I, I went on field trips with my professors to help with whatever studies they were working on at the time. Shout out to Dr. Polad if you're listening. I was absolutely infatuated with nature and my desire to feel connected to it. Now, parallel to this obsession were the deep dives I would do into my study of ancient texts, specifically the Bible. I would, I would comb through the Old and New Testaments looking for all the evidence I could find to support my conviction that humanity is responsible for caring for and protecting the earth. And then over time, I began to learn how to understand these ancient stories and letters and poems through an evolutionary lens and to see how they reflect humanity's evolving consciousness over time. Now, keep in mind, I didn't know any of this when I went off to seminary. I knew nothing. I had a background in environmental science and biology, and it seemed everyone around me had degrees in religion and philosophy. I grew up in a small town in a small United Methodist church in southwestern Virginia. I didn't know anything about anything academically, only the small bits of wisdom from my intuition. And so I, I went to seminary because I thought it was the next right step to getting me closer to God, however I understood God at that time. And, and becoming a pastor and studying the intricacies of the Bible and the intricacies of people just felt like the next right thing to do. I distinctly remember sitting in the common area on campus, because every campus has one of those, and I was talking to this other student, this other seminary student, and I don't remember exactly what I said, but I do remember his response back to me. He said, wait, you don't think the creation story in Genesis literally happened, do you? And it was this kind of awkward moment where I simultaneously felt judged for being so ignorant and also completely liberated to finally question everything. I had just sort of assumed that there were these unspoken rules in place and we all sort of thought and believed the same things and I I had no idea what I had gotten myself into but in that moment Pandora's box was open and that guy unknowingly sort of gave me a permission slip to move to a whole new level in my spiritual journey. Okay so I'm going to guide you through what it's like to explore an ancient text through an evolutionary lens and I want you to hold on tight if you've never done this before because I'm going to start tying all this stuff together and then I'm going to put it under a bright spotlight, so to speak, and see if we can elevate this whole thing to a new level. All right, here we go. You ready? Did you know that the creation story in Genesis 1 was a poem? I did not. Feel free to pause and go back and read it. Nobody ever told me in Sunday school or from the pulpit that the creation story is actually a 
poem. Most of us were never told that long ago there were many different creation stories out there and and that all of these stories were based on a three-tiered understanding of the universe. If you remember from earlier episodes, the worldview was that the earth was flat and that it rested on pillars and that there was a dome above the earth and the stars were the holes in the dome where heaven would shine through and God or the gods were up there in heaven sending us or depriving us of rain and sunshine. Now, if you were to go and examine all the creation stories separate from the Genesis poem, you'll discover that many of them have this one thing in common. And the thing that they all have in common is violence. For some of the stories, creation is a result of the gods at war. One is of God killing his lover and throwing her organs and intestines across the sky and somehow that's how we ended up with the Milky Way. If you, if you go and you read the Genesis creation poem, you read over and over again these two words. God said. God said, let there be light. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind. This God is different. This God doesn't use violence, but instead uses words and thoughts to create. And so when you read the Genesis creation story, it's actually showing us a picture of the progression in the forward movement of humanity. This is a non-violent picture of God that has been painted in response to all the other violent images out there at that time. This, this would have been like a huge leap in human consciousness at that time to think of God as a being who actually cared for and had a relationship with what was created would have been unheard of and it would have been a major catalyst that shifted how humanity understood the divine. Now Genesis doesn't have just one creation story it actually has two. The second story is in the second chapter and it's not a poem it's prose and it it describes this new relational understanding that exists between God and what is being created. So for example, there's that image of God creating a man out of the dust and then breathing life into his nostrils. And then God creates a garden and puts the man in the garden and then starts creating all the other animals and birds. Here's what's really cool about this story. The author tells us that God brings each of the animals and birds to the man and the man gets to decide what to name them. It says, so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now, why is this so interesting? It's interesting because the gods up there, out there in the sky, just don't do that sort of thing. The people listening to this story for the first time would have been blown away by these images. And by the way, you may have noticed that the name of this man has not been mentioned yet. The English translation of the Hebrew doesn't actually use the name Adam until later in the story. It's also worth noting what the words Adam and Eve mean. Years ago, author Diana Butler Bass posted a statement that said, just think how different things would be if the English Bible did not use Adam and Eve as names, but instead translated the Hebrew into what it really means. 
soil, and life. Because it really is ridiculous that these ancient stories, one of which is literally a poem, are used to control who can and cannot get married today in the 21st century. But that's a, a whole other podcast episode for another time. Right now, I want to I go back to this whole naming of all the creatures, all the living creatures, because it's quite obvious to come to the conclusion that when a name is given to another living creature, that act of naming is acknowledging the existence of a relationship. This is a really old story, and even then there was an awareness of the intricate connection of everything. I went back and I looked at how Jewish traditions have understood and interpreted this text because Western Christianity has always had a tendency to focus on the part where God says humans are to rule and have dominion over the creatures without including the understanding that ruling and having dominion actually meant being caretakers and stewards. So I have this book called The Eco Bible, and it's written by two Jewish rabbis. It's a Jewish ecological commentary on the Hebrew text, and it often points to what the Midrash says. The Midrash is a very old and very specific rabbinic commentary on the Hebrew Bible. So I was not at all surprised to read things like God created animals after people in the second creation story with the purpose of Adam naming the animals. Adam was engaged in a relationship of recognition and nonviolent interaction. That God paraded the various animals before Adam to name them after he studied their respective characteristics. The names Adam gave to animals reflected his wisdom, each name capturing the outstanding characteristics which made one animal species distinct from the others. The language, the Torah, the Torah, if you're not familiar, consists of the five, first five books of the Hebrew Bible. The language the Torah uses for insects, animals, and people is nefesh haya, literally a soul of life. And then finally, the thread that unites these midrashim is that the animals come to us as teachers providing moral examples for us. They are not just presented as vassals or objects to be taken care of. We can learn from them only by humbly standing in relation to them, i.e. by understanding in the truest and deepest sense of the word. So, we have these creation stories that were written thousands of years ago. They were written at a specific time in history to a specific group of people in history. These people would have had a certain level of understanding of how their world worked based on their experiences. Remember, this is before science, before telescopes, microscopes, and satellites. And in this story, if you begin to look at the intricacies, you can catch a glimpse of how thousands of years ago human consciousness made a step forward. What emerged was an awareness of just how intricately connected everything is and that human beings are part of that connection and they interpreted that connection to include the existence of an intimate relationship between humans and God. Now, the question then becomes, what do we, with a 21st century perspective, do with this snapshot from early history? Is it possible that this ancient story could serve in any capacity to help us make another leap forward in our consciousness as human beings? 
I'm going to argue yes, but you can follow me down this rabbit hole and then decide for yourself. In episode three, if you missed that episode, you'll want to go ahead and pause this and come back. In episode three, I, I made an attempt to look at how we can understand and experience God, the divine consciousness, ultimate reality, beyond the primitive perspective of God as a separate being out there or up there in the sky, sort of in control of everything. And I talked about how we can think about God as beingness itself, that God is not a separate being that we have to try to reach and find, but rather God is the energetic and animating force that resides within everything, including you. And all we have to do is become aware of our awareness of our beingness. And for many of us, not everyone is ready for this shift and that's okay, but for many of us, what we begin to realize is that it's all the same beingness. I use the example of looking at a tree. Can you identify the part of you that is aware that you are aware of the tree? That part of you is your I amness, your consciousness, your awareness. That's who you are. Your thoughts and feelings, sensations, experiences, those things, they come and go, but your awareness of it all remains constant. Your awareness never goes anywhere. And so I use the analogy of, of, of the ocean. We're all individual waves that are part of the one ocean. And so I, I talked about how we can become aware of our own beingness in the right now, in the present moment, and then connect with the beingness of who and what is around us and then recognize that it's all the same beingness. It's all the same ocean. Now, what happens when we overlay this perspective on top of an old ancient creation story, a story about a God, a being separate from everything else who literally separates night from day and earth from sky and uses spoken language to bring individual things into existence with their own individual names and then hangs out and walks around with what has been created. All of this, remember, giant leap forward in human consciousness. What happens when we take our 21st century perspective and look at the ancient creation story through that lens? I want to share with you another analogy that has been so helpful for me. Going back to one of my favorite spiritual teachers, Rupert Spira, he uses the image of a TV. Now, let's imagine your TV is on and you're watching one of those nature shows on National Geographic and your eyes are glued to the screen as you take in the beauty of the landscape. Let's say there's a mountain in the background with snow on top and a field of purple flowers and grasses leading up to the base of the mountain and there's a, a small lake where the water is so still you can see the reflection of the sky and puffy clouds. You got it? You there? All right. Now hold on to your seat because I'm about to go full woo on you right now. Let me ask you this. What is making it possible for you to see that landscape? It's the screen. If you were to go up to the TV, you wouldn't touch literal flowers and a mountain with your finger. You would touch the TV screen. The screen is what makes it possible for you to see all the individual things in the landscape. Now, look around you right now. Look at the space you are in. Look at, look at what is all around you. The furniture, the people, the pets, the plants, the trees, the sky. 
Can you imagine a source or a kind of screen, so to speak, that allows you to see it all? Like imagine everything suddenly becoming semi-transparent. Get really still and see if you can sense that there is an energy, a beingness right now in your present moment experience that seems to kind of saturate it all. Because you and everyone and everything are a part of that. You share your being with everyone and everything. It's, it's a total shift in consciousness because everything you see around you, including you, is a product of the one screen, so to speak. We are literally all connected together. There is no separation. The whole thing is beingness. This is what Rupert Spira says when he describes his TV analogy. It's absolutely beautiful. The landscape we see in a movie is an illusion, but it has a reality to it, relatively speaking, the screen. The landscape is not made out of grass and rocks and trees and sky. When we touch it, we don't find grass and rocks, but we don't find nothing. We find its reality, the screen. Moreover, all there is to the landscape is the screen. The screen is not buried behind the landscape. The landscape is not veiling the screen. It is our belief that the landscape is a landscape that makes the screen seem to be unseen. But as soon as we touch the reality of the landscape and realize, oh, it's a screen, and then we look at the landscape again and we realize all there is to the landscape is the screen, the landscape doesn't veil the screen. It shines with the screen as the screen. So this world as a multiplicity and diversity of objects made out of matter is an illusion. But if we touch the world, if we touch the stuff that the world is made of, if we go to its reality, we recognize its reality, infinite being. And then we come back to the world and we realize that all there is to the world is its reality. All there is to the world is infinite being. At that point, we realize that what previously seemed to veil reality, namely the world, now shines with it as it. Because if the world veiled its reality, the world would have to be something other than its reality. And what could it be other than reality? No, it is not the world that veils its reality. It's our belief that the world is a multiplicity and diversity of objects made out of matter that seems to veil its reality. As soon as that belief is removed, the world that once seemed to conceal its reality now shines with it. The reality is not buried in some realm behind the world. It is shining as the world. Everything we experience in the world is God's being shining. Everything. I just think that's so beautiful. And so the deeper question becomes when you look at a red oak tree or a peleated woodpecker, a beluga whale, or your next door neighbor, Dave, can you see beyond their name and what appears to be a separate I it or I thou? and see beyond what appears to be separation and recognize the shared I amness, the shared beingness. What did God say to Moses when he asked what God's name was? God said, tell them that I am sent me to you. 
say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Here's a quick throwback for you. I've said this so many times. A few weeks before I delivered my son, I started listening to this video by one of my all-time favorite people, spiritual teacher and author Rob Bell. Years ago, when he was still a pastor, he used to make these short videos that became extremely popular among church folk. And I started listening to this one called Breathe as a kind of meditation because I wanted to be intentional about being fully present and aware of that moment when our son took his first breath. And in the video, this is what Rob says. He says, now the name Lord, if you're reading it in the English translation of the Bible, the name is spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The name appears in the Bible over 6,000 times, but it wasn't originally written in the English language. It was written in the Hebrew language. And in the Hebrew, the name is essentially four letters. We would say Y-H-V-H. But in Hebrew, the letters are pronounced yod Hey va Hey. Some pronounce the name Yahweh or Yahweh. Although in many traditions, the name isn't even pronounced because it's considered so sacred and so mysterious and so holy. In fact, the ancient rabbis believed that these letters actually functioned kind of as vowels in the Hebrew language. They believed that they were kind of breathing sounds and that ultimately the name is simply unpronounceable because the letters together are essentially the sound of breathing. If you think about it, you're like, yo, hey, va, hey. And then he says this, he says, is the name of God the sound of breathing? If the name of God is the sound of breathing, how does that change the way you view yourself as a living being? How does it change the way you view others? This part is why I use the video as a meditation. He says, when a baby is born, what's the first thing it must do or this baby is not going to make it? Does this baby have to take a breath or say the name of God? And what's the last thing you do when you die? The last thing we do is we take our last breath or is it when we can no longer say the name of God, we die. The God in Genesis creates with breath and words and thought and intention and then invites humanity to participate in the creation and use our own breath, which is actually God's breath, to give names to what has been created. It, it paints a brand new picture of just how intricately connected everything and everyone is. And when you begin to look at that picture through what we now know about our world today, especially what we know about quantum physics, it reaffirms and galvanizes our deepest wisdom and intuition. We are all connected. We are all one. There is no separation. And what we do to another, we do to ourselves. When the Indian Hindu sage Ramana Maharshi was asked, how do we treat others? His response was, there are no others. What we do to someone of a different race, we do to ourselves. What we do to someone of a different religion, we do to ourselves. What we do to someone of a different gender with different pronouns and a new name, we do to ourselves. What we do to someone across the political aisle, 
we do to ourselves, what we do to our earth, we do to ourselves. A deeper question to leave you with is, how is what you are doing to yourself also affecting everyone and everything around you? Because we are not separate beings. We are expressions of the one being. And if that's not the stuff of wonder and all, I don't know what is. In my next episode, I'm going to try something a little different. I want to see if we can dive together into the intricacies of some of the named creatures on our planet, learn their names, and feel the connection and our relationship to them. And then I want to see if we can look together beyond their names and see if we can cultivate the feelings of wonder and awe and how that feeling can serve to help us intentionally tap into our shared beingness. Who knows, it could be a total disaster or it could be one of the coolest things ever. My guess is somewhere in the middle. We shall see. I hope you'll join in next time to find out. Namaste, my friends. Thank you.